The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. I'm Lauren, I work at Lymphoma Action, and today we're recording a podcast on enhanced supportive care. Many people might be more familiar with the term palliative care, so these types of care are all about improving quality of life through managing pain and symptoms associated with cancer and its treatment. Joined by Dr. Dan Monnery, consultant in palliative care at the Clatterbridge Cancer Centre. So a warm welcome, Dan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And just to give a little background context to tell you why we felt it was important that we record this podcast today. We know that people affected by lymphoma are interested in this information and we know that from our website viewing statistics. But we're also aware that this can be a really difficult topic of conversation for people and that people might be reluctant to ask the questions that they have. It's often associated with end of life, but actually we know that in reality, its benefits can be far more widely reaching to people right from the point of diagnosis onwards. So we're really fortunate to have Dan joining us this morning. Dan, perhaps you could just start by telling us a bit about yourself, your role, and perhaps outline the differences between supportive care, enhanced supportive care, palliative care, so my, my role, um, so I'm a palliative care consultant, as you mentioned, at the Clatterbridge Cancer Centre in Liverpool. And my role has developed to encompass more of a leadership in enhanced supportive care in that time, where the focus is more on support and care of patients from the point of diagnosis rather than later in the, in the course of their cancer. And I'll, I'll describe more um, shortly about the, the difference in models. My interest has been a lot around collecting data about what these models of care do for patients. What do they achieve? And the reason I did that is because my training was purely in palliative care rather than supportive care and enhanced supportive care. And what I noticed training as a registrar is that patients that were accessing enhanced supportive care services weren't necessarily coming to specialist palliative care at the end of life for their care, which made me think that actually they were going without something. So I initially undertook a lot of my research looking at whether they were going without something and whether or not we needed to change the way in which we work. What I learned actually is that people who have access to earlier supportive care are getting more, they're getting better symptom control, they're getting better quality of life, their families are getting additional support and their needs therefore from more specialist palliative care in terms of hospice care are sometimes not as present or not needed for as long as they would otherwise be. And my interest in that and looking at that kind of data is what has grown over time and is why I was asked to become the National Clinical Advisor for Enhanced Supportive Care this year, because I'm driving a lot of data collection from a number of centres in, in England, looking at what the impact is of these service models for patients and how we grow it as a service, because it's new. It's, it's only been around really in the last 10 years and it's not yet available everywhere. So what I would like to see is an availability of supportive care and an understanding of its importance in supporting patients from the diagnosis of, of cancer onwards and make sure that anybody who needs it can get it wherever they are, acknowledging that it is different from your, your traditional specialist palliative care. Now, in, in terms of answering the second part of your question about what are the differences, to me, it's about the timing and it's about the complexity if you like, of the, the patient's needs. So if you start with a specialist palliative care approach, that is anybody technically with an incurable condition, but because specialist palliative care is run 
by hospices usually. They're run by community services such as community palliative care or Macmillan services. These services don't have resource to see everybody all of the time. So they have to see those that need them most. And for that reason, people have got to have a certain amount of need in order to access these services. And that's what we sort of term complexity. So they have to have complex needs. So difficult pain or symptoms, difficult psychological needs, difficult social situations. And if you've got those needs with an incurable condition, then specialist palliative care is there. If you have an incurable condition and don't have the complexity of needs, then you should be able to access non-specialist palliative care from your GP or your district nurses or your site-specific um, clinical nurse specialist. But again, it depends, no disrespect to my colleagues, in terms of the training and experience of the people that you're seeing as to whether those needs are always met. So enhanced supportive care aims to provide something that's a bit more specialist, MDT based for everybody. You don't have to have complex needs. You don't have to be at the end of your life. You just have to be willing to engage with us and we'll support you with whatever it is you need. Now, the difference between supportive care and enhanced supportive care is the timing. Supportive care is any form of support the patient needs through their cancer journey. And that's not necessarily incurable cancer, that's curable cancer as well. Enhanced supportive care aims to get in early at the point of diagnosis so that those people have access from, from the time that they're diagnosed. Another way in which enhanced supportive care differs from palliative care is that because we see people early, we often see people before they have got a diagnosis of incurable cancer, where they're having treatment that might be curative, might not. There's a lot of uncertainty management about it. For the purpose of being able to get the support you need, it shouldn't matter. You should be able to have that supportive care. If you've got symptoms, they should be managed. If you are distressed and need psychological support, you should be able to get it. And you shouldn't need to have a diagnosis of incurable cancer in order to get that. So enhanced supportive care uh, services, as they develop, as they grow, are starting now to see more people who have got that uncertainty about their diagnosis rather than a diagnosis of incurable cancer. We're seeing those people that have completed their treatment that have a risk of relapse. Um, and some centres are also seeing people that have had definitive curative treatment, but are troubled by late effects. So they're, they're suffering from physical symptoms resulting from their treatment after they've been cured. So enhanced supportive care is, a, is earlier on in that, in that journey and is now starting as a model to diversify more into patients that are having curative treatment as well. Thank you, Dan. So it sounds like there's something about the equality of access here. Um, and you've, I think you've really highlighted that people across all stages can benefit right from the point of diagnosis up until treatment, through treatment and, and beyond, years beyond too. And I wondered what, what you see, are, you, you talked about some of the psychological and the physical needs. Um, could you maybe give us some examples of the types? So broadly speaking, you know, because I'm a palliative care consultant, 
the, the needs that I see of, of all patients tend to fit into the physical, psychological, spiritual and social categories. That's how we're trained to, to recognise the needs of our patients. So physical symptoms might be pain, it might be nausea, it might be constipation, psychological distress might be adjusting to a diagnosis of cancer, it might be depression or anxiety. Uh, social needs might be uh, the support that they need at home in terms of equipment or care and including the needs of the family and carers around them as well. We mustn't, mustn't forget that supportive care services need to look after families as well, and, and they do. The spiritual needs is more around what makes that person tick, what gives them strength, what are the things that they need to be able to continue to do to feel like themselves. Now, for some people, that's religion. For some people that's not. For some people that's, you know, I, I want to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle in three months time. That is a spiritual need you expect as a person to be able to do that. So if you need support to be able to do that and stop your cancer or its treatment getting in the way, that's what a supportive care service should enable you to do. So those sort of other categories of needs that, that I would look for whoever I'm looking after. In the lymphoma population, it tends to vary more depending on whether it's a, a low-grade or a high-grade lymphoma that's being treated, because the needs tend to be different. I think if you've got people with high-grade lymphoma that are having quite aggressive treatments, the needs tend to be more around uh, management of the side effects of intensive chemotherapy regimes, so there's quite a lot of nausea management goes on in terms of physical needs. People are often hospitalised for that treatment and that in itself comes with a psychological toll and the need to, to support people through that. So there's, there's a lot of psychological need there. And especially at the moment with COVID and people having to come into hospital and be on their own and their families are outside of it, wondering what's going on, needing that support for themselves. A big part of supportive care services has been actually supporting them remotely as well in, through that because they're separated from their loved ones. My experience more of, of lower grade lymphomas has, who are treated as outpatients and over longer periods of time have been more around difficult symptoms. I think being with their loved ones, being in their home, the psychological needs are, are different, although certainly, certainly present, but the symptoms are tricky. So, for example, the fatigue, the night sweats, fevers, itching. These are symptoms which are more difficult. Because when you think about palliative care and symptom control, you think pain control. I think a lot of people do. But actually, the training that we receive in symptom control is much broader than that. So if people have got itching related to their cancer, actually, we know how to sort that out. And so having access to somebody who can help manage that alongside the treatment that you're having for your lymphoma as an outpatient, we can do that. But the needs are different depending on, on the kind of lymphoma and the kind of treatment that people are having. The more intensive regimes come with more side effects and therefore the needs are different for that, that group of people. But we do both. So it's looking at the whole person's needs and of course physical and psychological and mental well-being all, all kind of tie in, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, it, it would be wrong of me to say that enhanced supportive care is early palliative care. And I know that I've got colleagues that will disagree with me on that. But actually, to my mind, palliative care is one part of what enhanced supportive care is and is, is one group of people contributing one part of that holistic care. It should include 
allied healthcare professionals, so physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, speech and language therapists. It should include those people that are experts in psychological care, so psychologists, counsellors. It should include those people that are skilled in looking after families who need it, so family support workers, social workers. Everybody should be there. To say that you're accessing an enhanced supportive care service shouldn't mean that you see a doctor necessarily. If you need a doctor, yeah. If you need a psychologist, that will be the person that you see. If you need a physiotherapist, that will be the person that you see. So every, all of those people should be involved and available to deliver enhanced supportive care. And if you as a patient need any one of those things, you should be able to access it when you need it. It's a whole suite then, isn't it? And, and I wonder then with all of those different health and um, social care professionals that might be helpful at particular times, how do people go about accessing these, these care types and, and the family as well? I think the importance is to have an early conversation about what you need with somebody who knows how to signpost and refer to the right services and then leave that door open to reaccess in case your needs change. And different cancer centres do that differently. So some centres, I think most centres, if I'm honest, use uh, a health needs assessment, which is conducted by a cancer support worker at the time of diagnosis. And um, that will identify what your needs are and try and link you in with the right services. My service is offered to everybody and what they what patients will do is sit down with me or one of my colleagues and we'll have a conversation about what their needs are and I'll refer in, into the most appropriate person for them. Who sees you at that initial stage is not as important as the conversation you have about what your needs are at that time and what services are available locally and the referral into the services that you're identified as needing and the same for your family. Ideally, a family would be present, a family member or carer or friend would be in that conversation as well. Although I appreciate through COVID that's been more difficult and a lot of that has had to take place digitally, it should still look after that person as well. So really, this is something that everybody should be able to access. So people as well on active monitoring, people that might be experiencing, I think you said, late effects as well. So really at any point to be able to re-enter that care package. Yes. So if you've got a dedicated person that has sat down with you and assessed your needs and made sure that you're linked in with the people that address those needs, if you no longer need to access that service because that need has been managed or you think actually you don't need to access that service anymore, you may develop a need later on. So you should be able to reaccess the same service that helped with that need via the same person that you know. And that's a, that's a model that does work. So a lot of cancer services at the moment are, uh, are doing uh, what's called a stratified follow-up. I, I call it an open follow-up for my patients where they have a contact number. If patients don't need to continue to have regular appointments, they're given the option to set their own appointment if they need one in the future, because we already know them. So why wouldn't they come back if they needed something? So that relationship is really important, isn't it? And, and that people know that, that, that they're welcome and that they can go back. So how do you say that enhanced supportive care can make a positive difference? And how do we know? I mean, intuitively, it sounds, it sounds like it will make a positive difference. But what, what can you tell us about what you know in terms of its effectiveness? A lot of the, the data that, um, that I've been involved in collecting and, and looking at over the years about the impact of enhanced supportive care comes mainly from the, 
the group of people that don't have curative cancer and also from it's more from the solid organ tumor population because i see more of those people than i do lymphoma it's it's fair to say so actually a lot of the early data that i've got and that, and that my colleagues um, across the country are collecting relates more to that group of people at the moment although there is work going on to try and look at the impacts for, for people with uh, lymphoma and myeloma as well what we know about the benefits for patients from, from the data we have is that quality of life is better. So we, we use a number of validated tools to, to measure that over time from the point that people come to us and onwards. And we use that to, to, for patients to tell us over time what their experiences are, what their symptoms are, what their psychological and social needs are. And actually there is an improvement over time from, from accessing enhanced supportive care services. We know that uh, people who have access to enhanced supportive care tend to have fewer admissions to hospital, particularly those people that are in the last year of life, which I know is always a difficult one to, to measure. But there is a tendency when people have an incurable diagnosis of cancer to need more in terms of acute hospital care uh, as people get more poorly. And actually, enhanced supportive care reduces that significantly. People are able to stay at home with better symptom control for longer. We know that if, pay, if people do get admitted to hospital, they spend less time in hospital, so they're able to get home quicker. We know that uh, some groups of people are likely to live longer if they get the right supportive care. So uh, patients with lung cancer in particular are showing, are showing an interesting trend in terms of living longer if they have that better support. We also have started to discover that uh, people who have access to enhanced supportive care make different choices and are empowered to make different choices around their chemotherapy. So for example, um, some patients choose to stop chemotherapy earlier if they're linked in with the right support, rather than opposed to somebody who doesn't access that support and just continues with palliative chemotherapy. The ESC patients uh, stop earlier, but don't actually live any less time for it. So they're, they're making, rather than having uh, a prolonged survival in those groups of like we see in lung, actually they're getting the same survival for having to endure less chemotherapy, which is interesting. And when we look at the reasons why people stop chemotherapy, there is a much increased rate of patients stopping when the time is right for them and when they choose to for patients that access enhanced supportive care compared to the national average where people tend to stop when they're too unwell to continue. There are some really, really powerful and wide-reaching benefits to this, this approach then, and the patient really is at the centre. Could you just go over for us what the key principles of the approach are, please? So we've, we've tried to be quite broad in terms of the, the key principles for enhanced supportive care. So the first one, and I think the most important one, is the earlier involvement of supportive care services. The timing, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. Uh, the second principle is that the teams that support patients with cancer need to work much more closely together. So when I referred previously to that holistic care, all of the people that should be involved in an enhanced supportive care approach, that only works if those teams talk to each other and the patient can have several of those, one of those, move between those groups of people, but that requires a, a close working relationship and an established pathway by which patients can navigate that. So that's, that's an important principle. 
Third principle is that we as healthcare providers should adopt a more positive approach towards supportive care. This is something that we should talk about. It's something that we should offer. And it's something that we shouldn't shy away from because some people worry it's introducing palliative care through the back door and what the implications of that might be to the patient. It's not about that. If you're offering supportive care and that patient needs palliative care as part of that, they can have it. If they don't need palliative care as part of that, they don't have to have it. But the door is open for whatever they need. And we just need to appreciate that supporting patients with whatever they need from the point they're diagnosed is really important. Fourth principle is around using evidence-based practice to support uh, the development of supportive palliative care. So I've talked about, a bit about the data that we're collecting nationally and what that's showing us in terms of the impact. And that's important because actually if we were doing this and it wasn't making any difference to anybody, then we wouldn't be pushing for this to be something that's standard care. It does, as you say, on the face of it, seem like the right care to be giving to anyone and everyone. But we need patients to tell us that. It's not for us to determine what's effective and what's useful for people. So that, that talking to people, getting them to tell us uh, what their experiences are and what, what data backs up the, the differences in the patient journey, that's, that's really crucial for the development of this. The fifth principle is around using technology to improve communication and, and the way we work. And this was a principle that existed for ESC before COVID, but COVID has very much hammered it home because we've all had to do that as an NHS by adopting new ways of working, using technology, um, for example, video consultations. Uh, some places are using apps where patients um, keep in contact with their care provider by uploading how they are and what's going on with their symptoms. And equally, healthcare providers will contact them through the app. And that's, that's really important because it allows patients that bit more autonomy, that bit more freedom to dip in and out of consultations when they need to, but keep everybody updated, but also continually be supported when they need to be. Um, through that digital technology. So that's something which is important in enhanced supportive care in general outside of a COVID world because it means that everybody is uh, kept an eye on and supported when they need to be without necessarily having to continually come to face-to-face -face appointments if they don't need to or want to. And then the final, um, the final principle is promoting best practice in the care of patients undergoing chemotherapy. And the reason for that is a big part of supportive care is not just about treating patients holistically from the, from the perspective of their needs in terms of their cancer management. It's as much about treating side effects. So we know that chemotherapy makes people feel unwell. That may cause pain, it may cause nausea, it may cause other side effects. We know that some people having immunotherapy get some uh, toxicities relating to that. So um, colitis, for example, or um, adrenal crises. Supportive care is managing that. You know, it's not just about managing the, the cancer, it's managing the treatment as well. So it's important that we don't neglect that when we're thinking about our modelling for, for supportive care going forwards. You alluded a little to some of the challenges and that some people might think that, I think you said it's palliative care, but, you know, in disguise and coming in through the back door. So uh, are there any other challenges or difficulties, limitations that you see? One of the things I've learned is that people are more comfortable with it the more they use it. So 
as, a, as an early service, it's still going through that period of people becoming aware of it. I think the people that use it understand that it's not palliative care by the back door. And when I meet a patient for the first time, I tell them I'm a palliative care consultant, but this is how I fit into the bigger picture. You know, you're accessing an enhanced supportive care service. I'm here to deal with some of that. And you also need a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist or whoever else they need. But it's not that they've been referred necessarily to palliative care. Getting the same message to other professionals as well, so that they realise what they're referring to when they refer to enhanced supportive care is equally important. And I think that that's something that we've perhaps not focused on as much in recent years, but know that it's an important thing. It's also getting in the door with new, um, new people in new primary tumour groups, if that makes sense. So what, what enhanced supportive care services across the country had to do because of resources to start with a select few groups of people they want to be available to just to see how it works for them and their local population's needs before they invite it to everybody and then grow their service depending on what works, what doesn't, remodel it, reshape it over time. And we're, that, that's been a challenge because everybody needs slightly different things. So for example, at Clatterbridge, where I work, having a clinic model that people could come to and, and sit down with somebody, talk about their needs and be linked in works to an extent, but actually if you turn up for chemotherapy and you're not well, you need to be able to access the right supportive care for you on that day. And the clinic model doesn't work. So changing our model, we now run an ambulatory service where people can just turn up and get what they need on the day if they need it, if they have that very substantial need. Contrast that to one of our other enhanced supportive care services in Cornwall, for example. The geography of Cornwall is different. It's more difficult to get to the hospitals that you where you where you receive your care. And the technology availability among the local population is such that trying to do digital remote consultations actually hasn't worked that well either. Um, because of digital poverty. So actually the model that they've had to use is to go to people's homes. So if you've got a diagnosis and you've been offered supportive care and you need to have that initial conversation and that ongoing support because of the situation in Cornwall, it happens at home. So part of the difficulty, coming back to your question, is we can't nationally say, this is what enhanced supportive care is, this is how it should look and this is how you should do it because one size doesn't fit all and that's what we're learning there's got to be some flexibility around around local needs but i think it's positive because what we are learning is the more we grow and the more uh, professionals other um, oncologists hematologists uh, other professions in general the more they access these services the more they then continue to access them and more of their patients they see as as needing these services so Initially, we, we set up our own outpatient clinics and we had 56 referrals in, in the first year of those early people that could see, see the role of it. We now get about 800 referrals a year uh, because we're, we're standard of care now for a lot of people. So it's being familiar, being approachable and letting people know that we're not here to take over. We're not here to say, don't give any more chemotherapy. We are here to support the patient with whatever the patient's needs are, wherever they are in that stage of illness. And, you know, that, I, say, I say that's all, but that's, that's an important thing. And, I, I'm, and we should be able to do that. And I think people recognise that now. 
Thank you. So I think that that um, that jump in the referral numbers really does speak volumes, doesn't it? And that you've made huge progress embedding this as part of the care package. And although there are challenges, and like you say, some of the technology and rural living, uh, the, the principles really then are key, aren't they, for health professionals to be able to adapt and to be able to offer what is available and to tailor things because personalization it sounds really is the key to enhance supportive care. Absolutely and when we've spoken with um, commissioners and council alliances to try and increase the awareness around enhanced supportive care and try and get their support to adopt that approach regionally when we've spoken to people around the country. Personalization of care is what we talk about most because it's a core component of the long the NHS long-term plan for cancer, that personalization of care and, and supportive care enables that to happen. It doesn't just assess people's needs on an individual basis, it meets those needs, it delivers that care. So it takes it one step further uh, than just doing an assessment of, of somebody's needs and signposting them. So that's why we think it's really important in, in, in becoming standard care in, in all cancers. It sounds like the gold standard to me. It sounds like something that should be available to everybody, but it is really about improving somebody's whole experience and, and their life generally. Dan, could you also tell us a little bit perhaps about the benefits to the health professionals that are working with the patient? Yes, I think that it's, it is something that, that does um, support the work of other, other professionals. And there's been some work done qualitatively in terms of what the experience has been of other healthcare professionals when supported by an enhanced supportive care service. And the themes that came out of that are, are around having somewhere, some, somewhere to refer the patient for that holistic support. Sometimes actually, because there's so much in an enhanced supportive care offering, trying to pick the right person to do the right bit is sometimes quite difficult. Sometimes it's quite crowded and sometimes it takes a long discussion with the patient to tease out what the important things are. So having a single point of referral to say, this patient needs support, please can you do that assessment and, and make sure that the LinkedIn is quite helpful in terms of making sure that your patient gets everything but being aware of the time that you have perhaps as an individual to do that assessment but actually there's a service that will help with that. I think supporting difficult conversations has been something that's come up as a, as a, as a benefit for healthcare professionals because there are a lot of difficult conversations that go on particularly around communicating uncertainty actually coming back to you know the, the lymphoma population those patients get quite intense treatments with the intention of good outcomes but not with the certainty of good outcomes so there's a difficult conversation several difficult conversations in fact to be had there and actually supportive care professionals can, can help with that and help the patient to cope with those kind of discussions as well. I think that another advantage for healthcare professionals is having that extra pair of eyes on that person. So if you can only see a patient so often, but they are somebody that needs an eye keeping on them, and then, you know, for example, side effects or new symptoms, you do have somebody else doing that check so that can be highlighted and actually that that responsiveness um, of care is better. And I think it also gives you as a, as a healthcare professional, someone else to, to talk to and discuss treatment decisions with, because 
sometimes these decisions are finely balanced. Sometimes it's difficult to know what the right thing is to do for an individual person. And of course, the right thing is, is to discuss it with that person. But sometimes you need to know where you stand as a healthcare professional on the different options. And actually, that's helpful to have somebody to reflect back some of, some of the, the pros, cons, risks and benefits for that person. And I think that, that mutual peer support has been a, been a useful thing for, for healthcare professionals. So where do you see ESC enhanced supportive care heading in the future and what, what's your vision for it? I want enhanced supportive care to be standard care in all cancers, wherever, wherever you're treated in, in you know, the UK. I suppose I can't speak for the whole of the UK because I am the NHS England National Clinical Advisor, so at least in England, if not, if not wider. And that will come, I think, from, from it being a commissioned service. I think in order for it to become a standard of care, there has to be a recognition nationally that it is the right care and it is NHS care and therefore it is commissioned as part of the NHS. Um, so that is what I would like to see happen. A lot of the work that we're doing at the moment is trying to work out what the cost implications of that might be from the perspective of from the benefits I told you before about people not going into hospital as much, not spending as much time in hospital. Actually, there is, there is a financial benefit to that for the NHS, which is greater than the cost of the SC. So I do think it's something that's financially viable and should therefore be available everywhere. But that is what I would really like to see. So Dan, your, your enthusiasm and your passion for this enhanced supportive care really does come across. Can you tell us what you find so fulfilling about it? I think for me, the most fulfilling bit is, is my own practice in, in Clatterbridge with the patients that, that I look after. I feel useful doing what I do. Even if, you know, when I'm looking after people that have cancer that can't be cured, there's a lot that I can do and patients tell me that what a difference it makes in terms of symptom control, being able to improve their, their quality of life, their, the things that they can do day to day, even the conversations we have about, you know, what might happen in those uncertain situations and what plans, if any, patients want to make in different circumstances. People often tell me that actually I'm the first person to ask certain questions about what they want. And I think that that is really important, but it, it does make me feel like I make a difference. If I'm that person that's going to sit and have a conversation with somebody and make sure that they get what they need, that is where I get my satisfaction from. The work I do um, at a national level and also the, around the data collection that I mentioned before, I enjoy that. I find it interesting, but that's not why I get up and go to work every day. It's to, it's to see the, the people that I look after and make sure that they get you know, everything that, everything that they need in terms of the right support. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for, for allowing me to come and talk to you this morning. I really enjoyed it. Enhanced supportive care is more available in some areas of the country than others. You might like to talk to a clinical nurse specialist or another member of your healthcare team about whether it's available to you or what other types of additional support you can access in your area. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.